Uh, last week, uh, we started our series uh, from the Epistle of James, a small uh, New Testament letter written to really the church at large, Christians at large, really wasn't uh, written to a specific place. And we talked about uh, what James was like and who he was and uh, what, his, what his epistle is like. And what we saw is that James is really passionate about Christians living out their faith. What James was doing is that he was addressing people who had no problem identifying as Christians, people who knew Jesus. But these people, their proximity to Jesus didn't necessarily translate into their allegiance to Jesus. And James, after all, he should know what that's like, right? I mean, Jesus was a part of Jesus' family. James was part of Jesus' family. He was his brother. And what we saw in the Gospels is that uh, Jesus' family consistently made his life complicated. But things would change for, at least for James. The light bulb would go off for him. It would go off when he, he met with Jesus after his resurrection. This is strange. I mean, James had gotten way into adulthood. He had spent lots and lots and lots of time with Jesus, but he didn't get who Jesus was. Yet, what we see in the Gospels are lots of people who understand who Jesus is instantly, but James somehow didn't. And now, James is really passionate about waking people up who are just like him. People like me and you. And how James tries to wake us up is he consistently calls us to the carpet in his epistle. He challenges us to assess the validity of our confession. And last week we saw that he calls us to the carpet by calling us to endure our trials with joy. He gave us reasons for being joyful. And now he moves into the text under our consideration today to talk about the threat that lies within our trials. And that's temptation. So let's read uh, verses 12 to 18 from chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. See, in verse 12, look at verse 12 real quick. You see the word test. Familiar word if you are here last week because we saw the word test in verse 2 as well. And then this same word, this same word in the Greek, the, 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 the language of the New Testament is written in, you see uh, you, the word for test in 2 and 12 is used again in verse 13, but it's translated differently. In verse 13, it's translated as tempt. So what dictates whether this Greek word is translated as tempt or test. Well, it's the, it's the context. It, it's not surprising that the translation can go both ways, test or tempt, because being tested and being tempted, they usually go together in our experience. I mean, isn't it true that when you're in a tight space that you're prone to do things that you never thought you would do? Walter White, right? 
needs money for chemotherapy, becomes a drug kingpin. He never dreamed of doing that, but things got tight for him. So do you see how it's possible when someone's being tested, when they're suffering, that they're so focused on the pain of their circumstances that they forget that there are internal dynamics to tend to as well? So every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation. It carries with it an inner enticement to sin. I mean, think about it. I mean, financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the poor and the ease of the rich can tempt us to question God's justice. Or you have a disagreement with your spouse and it turns into a temptation when you get angry and you say hateful things. See, brother and sister, I hate to break it to you, but it's not a question of if you'll be tempted. It's just a question of when. And being tempted is not something you can avoid by having money or power or a good pedigree. So if temptations are, if they are inevitable for the Christian, for the Christian life, how do we deal with them? Well, James gives us two things that we need to know and two things we need to trust about God if we're going to stand when the winds of temptation blow. The first thing we need to know about God in the midst of a test is that God doesn't tempt us. You see in verse 13, and very clearly, James says, God tempts no one. Now, that's different than God testing us. I mean, God tests Abraham, Genesis 22. God tests Israelites in the desert that we heard earlier from Camille. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is given a thorn in the flesh as a test. Like we heard about last week in verses 2 to 12, that we are tested by God. And these tests, they prove and improve our character. They strengthen our faith. But James wants us to differentiate a test from a temptation. See, God never seeks to induce sin. It's not his fault that we're tempted. But when we do, when we are tempted and we do fall into sin, we're very quick to blame God, aren't we? I mean, it happens in a multitude of ways. I mean, one way it happens is we do it theologically. We do it cognitively. We say God ordained everything, including sin. It's really a cognitive approach of shifting the blame on God, but it's not true. You can also blame God for your sin when you blame your circumstances or your passions and you say that, that, that those are the things that made you sin. And if God would just change your circumstances and change your passions, then you wouldn't have sinned. And both of these ways are really ways of playing the victim card, aren't they? They're ways of evading responsibility. And that's why James says what he does in verse 14. Do you see it in verse 14? He says that we're lured and enticed by our desires. What James is saying is that we should be pointing the blame at ourselves. And these two verbs, lured and enticed, are brought in from the realm of hunting and fishing. I grew up deer hunting with my dad. My dad's here today. I never killed a deer. The reason wasn't that I was a bad shot. The reason was I just fall asleep. It was early. But in preparation to go hunting all those times, my dad taught me how to shoot a rifle. He helped me. Uh, he, he, we, I helped him at least a little, not, probably not very much, build these tree stands. I 
helped him set out these salt blocks in various places in the land where we would go hunting. And when we set out these salt blocks, it, I, I, was, I wasn't very old. I mean, I wasn't like a little kid. He's not that strange. He's not like a, uh, you know, trying to get me to hunt at the age of four or nothing. But I mean, I remember I wasn't real big. I didn't understand how animals worked. And I, I just thought, oh, we give them food, right? I mean, deer are probably like horses. Let's put out a bunch of carrots for these deer. But we're putting out these salt blocks. He told me the reason we're putting out salt blocks is because deer love salt. And then we made sure we had clear sight lines from the tree stands to the salt blocks in hopes of luring the deer in so that we might eventually drag them out. See, same, same idea here in verse 14. Our sinful nature lures us in and then drags us out. See, God's not the one to blame. He didn't set the trap. We did. See, let me, let me tell you how this works. I mean, take a, a physically beautiful person that you're sexually attracted to. Their beauty is intrinsically good. It's intrinsically innocent. Beauty by itself never forces anyone to sin. See, people ought to be capable of noticing God's handiwork and thanking him for it. We can't have a detached admiration, much like a visitor to an art gallery can have an admiration for a work of art. But see, things go wrong when we move from a detached admiration to wanting to own it or consume it for ourselves. So where does the fault lie? With the beauty created by God? With the person who we happen to find attractive? No, it lies with us. See, look in verse 13. In verse 13, we see that the source of our temptations is not God. Verse 14, we see that the source is the old number one. The old saying, instead of pointing one finger at someone else, you've got four pointing back at you. And then in verse 15, we see the course, the course that can, temptation can lead us, that can lead us to sin, which can lead to death. And so far in chapter one, James presents us with two different paths, doesn't he? I mean, what we saw last week is that the path can go, uh, that, that we can meet a test with endurance. And if we do, then it produces maturity and it produces life, eternal life, verse 12. Or you can take the second path, the, the path that we see in verse 15, that, that we have these sinful desires that lead to sin and then sin leads to death. I think the tricky part for me and you this morning is that one path feels like death and the other feels like life. The first path feels like death. It's hard to endure suffering with the long view to the maturity that it can bring, right? And the second path feels like life while it's happening. The deer loves the salt. Indulging our desires feels good. Lust feels good for a moment. Anger feels good for a moment. Being materialistic feels good for a moment. But when it becomes a pattern, it becomes this life-dominating force that brings death in your experience in this life and ultimately for eternity. See, James is trying to get something through our, through, through our thick skulls, isn't he? He's trying to show us that unpleasant external circumstances are always coupled with dangerous internal temptations. And God's not to blame for our temptations. We are. So let me ask you a few questions. How have you been blaming God for what's wrong in your life? Maybe 
You need to reframe your unpleasant external circumstance as a test from God instead of a punishment from him. Maybe you need to take responsibility and repent for how your trial has led you to sin instead of saying how you're a victim of your passions or your situations. I'm not sure. That's work you've got to do with the Holy Spirit. But you won't make it through your trial until you see that God didn't tempt you in the midst of it. There's one more thing we need to know about God in the midst of our trial. You've got to know that he gives us good gifts. That's what we see in verses 17 and 18. You've got this positive counterbalance from the negative statements of verse 13 to 15. Does God send temptations? No. Then what does he send? Well, he sends gifts. See, God's not trying to get you to fail. He's trying to give you gifts, especially in the middle of your trial. He's trying to give you a a brother or sister who can be a shoulder for you to cry on in the midst of your suffering. That's the kind of gift he wants to give you. What God wants to give you in the middle of your trials, he, he wants to give you these sacraments to help you hang on. He wants to give you a verse to cling to. And these gifts, what they'll do is that they'll remind you of who God is said to be in verse 17. Do you see what who God said to be in verse 17? We said to be a giver. He gives things that in there, he gives good things. Therefore, God is good. It says God's sovereign, that he doesn't give some good gifts and perfect gifts, he gives all of them. It says that he's dependable. He's the father of lights, which means as sure as the sun comes up in the morning and the moon comes up at night, that's how dependable God is. Verse 17 is trying to tell us that he's unchanging. There's no variation or shadow due to change. Meaning he's not temperamental. He's not giving you maturing tests on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and he's giving you, and, and he's giving you uh, cruel temptations on Tuesday and Thursday. See, this God, this sovereign, dependable, good, unchanging God, he cares about you. Can you believe that? And you know he cares about you when you look at verse 18. Verse 18 takes you back where it all started for each of us. It takes us back to our spiritual birth. See, our Father, the one who made the lights of the heaven, he sent his only begotten Son to pass the test that our earthly parents, Adam and Eve, failed. Adam and Eve, they were tested in the garden, and they failed. Jesus was tested in the desert, and he succeeded. He was tested in the events leading up to the cross, and he continued to trust in his Father. And when he was most likely to curse God, he submitted to him at Calvary, and he said, it's not my will, but yours that should be done. And what was God's will? God's will was to bring you to life. You, the one who's so easily lured, the one who's so easily dragged away by your sinful desires. Isn't that amazing? It was his will to give you life. And that's grace, brothers and sisters. That's the word of truth mentioned in verse 18. The word of truth really is just shorthand for the gospel. So have you experienced, have you heard this word of truth in your inner being? Has that word brought you life in a spiritual sense? Maybe it was at eight, maybe it happens when you're 88. But the thing about spiritual birth is that it's irrespective of age. It's wholly brought on by the work of the Spirit. And when this new birth comes, it's going to bring you new life. It's going to bring you new energies. It's going to give you new prospects. And most importantly, it's going to give you a new relationship with God. 
See, brothers and sisters, as we look at these first 18 verses in the book of James, we see real clearly that life is really hard. It's hard on the outside that we're tested, that there's suffering in this life. We see that life's hard, particularly for Christians, because we're tempted. We can face these tests and we can fail them because not because God tempted us, because our sinful desires, they got the best of us. But in spite of our failures, he's going to give you gifts. And in his unprompted goodness, he's going to bring you to life. And one day, one day, brother and sister, there won't be any more tests. One day, there won't be any more temptations. One day, you will experience the full redemption that God has planned. You'll be complete This world will no longer be tainted by sins. And he's going to bring us forth as the first fruits of his redemption. So, brother and sister, I pray. He may give us all hope, the hope that we need to see that that day is coming in this day today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being the Father of lights, who gives us good gifts, so that uh, the darkness can't hold us like you can. So, Lord, I pray that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our test, we would come to you and we'd let you give us all these gifts. And in the end, experience maturity. Lord, I pray for my brother and sister sitting out here today who's been haunted with temptations, Lord, who has by their own estimation failed again and again. Lord, I pray that you would come alongside them. And Lord, I pray that you would show them verses 17 and 18 and bring them, bring those two verses, um, make them precise and 3D, make them come alive for them. I pray these things in your name. Amen.